Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 17. And I want to welcome all of you to worship those in here, those in our summit worship that I uh, was able to greet just a little while ago. And of course, all those that are worshiping from home. It is good to be in the house of the Lord, wherever you're sitting today. And I've enjoyed our worship time and looking forward to reading God's word to you this morning. We we began last week to focus on this amazing prayer, John 17, 26 verses from beginning to end. It is the prayer of Christ. And it gives us really a, a window into the heart and mind of Christ because this prayer was prayed, you know, perhaps in his most difficult hours. Uh, this was the day before he knew he was going to be crucified. Can you imagine if you knew tomorrow that you were going to die? What would your prayer be like today? You'd be praying about the things that were most dear to you, your highest priorities. And when we turn to John 17, we find Jesus doing exactly that. And so this is an incredible chapter. People have said it's the most beautiful chapter in Scripture. You know, that's an arguable point. All of Scripture is wonderful. But I'm looking forward to getting into the content of this today. Last week, we really just introduced it. We just looked at the first verse and we... And we remarked that there are three surprises in this prayer. The first surprise, for me anyway, is that Jesus would be praying at all. And perhaps that doesn't surprise you, but you know, Jesus is all-powerful. He is the creator of the universe. He is the one by his power who sustains everything, every moment of every day. Why would Jesus need to call out in prayer? And we talked about that and, and learned about that last week. The second surprise we looked at last week is just the fact that Jesus prayed with his whole body. This wasn't just a subtle, silent prayer. Jesus prayed. And we talked about the pattern of posture in the Bible and what we could learn from that. And then finally, we learned a principle for our prayers. We noticed the surprising truth, I believe, that Jesus prayed me for you. Lord, bless me for your glory. Bless me for your purposes. Pray me for you. So with that introduction today, I just want to get into the content. There are three parts to the prayer. The first five verses, Jesus prays for himself. And then verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for the disciples. And then 20 through 26, Jesus prays for all believers. He prays for me and for you. And so we'll look at the first two parts of this today. Let's just begin in verse 1. It says, Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. You see the pattern there? Bless me for you. Honor me for you. But I want you to see something else in verse 1 that we, we didn't take much time on last week, and that's the phrase, that it is his final hour. He says, Father, the hour has come. What's he talking about? What is the hour that has come? Well, Jesus is coming to this climatic point in all of history. Uh, Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit, 
that triune God, they have been looking forward to this day from eternity past. It has been settled for more years than our minds can comprehend that Jesus would come and he would live a sinless life, that he would die on the cross, that he would be buried, and then he would be resurrected to glory and ascended to heaven. This is it. Everything depends upon this. My eternal life, your salvation, this is it. And so Jesus says, the hour has come. We've been, we've been looking forward to this for all eternity. And now it's here. The hour has come. And I'm going to glorify the Father. Now verse 2, he says, since you gave him authority over all flesh, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. Now, subtle shift here from the glory of God to eternal life. Though the whole prayer is really about the glory of God, here he mentions this very important phrase to us, eternal life. We all want eternal life, right? People are dying. People get old. Their bodies uh, are, are weak and, and eventually there's death. Sometimes there's tragic death and death is what we fear. Eternal life is what we desire. But what exactly is eternal life? When, when Jesus says that that we're going to give the Father and the Son, we're going to give eternal life, what exactly is he giving to us? Well, we see a definition in verse 3. And I think this is not only important, but valuable to us. He says, look at just the first four words to start with. This is eternal life. Colon. In my Bible, there's a colon. And so he's about to give us a definition. But before we look at the definition, let's think of what eternal life is not. Oftentimes when you think about eternal life, people think about life that never ends. Life that is unending. Well, is that what he's talking about here? Well, yes, eternal life does mean life that doesn't end, but that's not all that it means. The truth is that every person created in the image of God, every person will live forever somewhere, right? Those that accept Christ, life is unending. For those who reject Christ, life is unending. So eternal life can't just refer to the quantity of life or how, how long it goes. You know, sometimes when we think of eternal life, we think of heaven. Eternal life to me means heaven. Well, that's, that's not untrue, of course. We will spend eternity with the Father in the new heaven and the new earth. And that'll be a glorious thing. We should look forward to that. That's why the Bible teaches us about heaven. But eternal life has got to be more than just heaven. So what does he say? Verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and the only, uh, or, or the one, I should say, you have sent, Jesus Christ. So this is eternal life, that you may know God that you might know God, that you might have a relationship with God, that you know him, he knows you. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 27, he said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Jesus is the shepherd. We are the sheep. Jesus says the sheep recognize the shepherd because they know the shepherd. The shepherd recognizes the sheep because the shepherd knows the sheep. We know God in a powerful way, in an intimate way. We can have a relationship with God. Now, before this prayer of John 17, there was a sermon, a long sermon, John 15 and 16. 
And it's interesting to look for the connections between the sermon and the prayer, and, and that would be a very long study. But let me just point out one. In John 15, this would have just been a few minutes probably before Jesus prayed this prayer. Jesus told the disciples that they should abide in him. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. And just as a branch stays connected to the vine, so you should stay connected to me. He's talking about this relationship. We must have knowledge, not knowledge of, not knowledge about, not even agreement with, but we must know God in a relationship. Now, that, that bothers some people, but I, but, but I think it bothers some people in the, in the best way possible because th this is a distinguishing feature. If you do not have a relationship with God, a relationship, then you are not a child of God. And if you, if you have a relationship with God, you are a child of God. We have to know him. Now, what, what, how do we know him then? How do we, how do we find this knowledge? Well, the Bible says simply it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You, you know him, that is the result of you putting your trust in the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life, he died a substitutionary death, a sacrificial death for you, and in dying for you, your sins have been forgiven, and then he rose in victory, the resurrection, and you now, we now can have eternal life if we trust in Jesus. So we trust in Jesus, and then the result of that is that we know him. We know him. I was reading this week uh, one uh, theologian, I, I believe the book I, I, I'm thinking of, he, he was talking about what it really means to know God, to know Christ. And he was trying to make the distinction between knowing of something, knowing about something, and knowing something. You know, I know many of you in the sense that I know about you, I know of you. Uh, but I really know my wife. I know just about everything about my wife. It's a, it's a relationship, not just an acquaintance. And, and so this, this theologian said this. He says, if you're drowning at sea, you're drowning at sea, it is not enough to see the land. It is not enough to believe in the land. It is not enough to know the advantages of the land. If you don't reach the land, you'll drown in the sea. And, and the point he was making is that eternal life is knowing God. And there are too many people who know about, who know of, who maybe even agree with, but they, they've not reached the shore. We reach the shore by trusting in Jesus, surrendering our life, repenting of our sins, and we allow Jesus to bring us to, bring us to shore. So he says here, that eternal life, verse 3, is knowing God. Look at verse 4. He says, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. Now, I, I just want to point out something here that might confuse you if you study this further this week. He says in verse 4 that he has completed the work that God has given him to do. Well, what is the work? Well, it's the crucifixion, it's uh, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension. And when we come to John 17, that's not really complete, right? It's not complete as measured by time. But here's what Jesus is saying. And we're going to see this confirmed a little later in our, in our reading this morning. Jesus sees all of this as the hour. His, uh, his arrest, which will happen uh, later this night, 
uh, his crucifixion, burial, resurrection, the whole thing, ascension into heaven. He sees this, this as his hour that he glorifies God. And in his mind, it's settled. It's established. He's doing it. It is done in the sense that he is so committed to it. So he says it is done. We'll see more of that perspective in a moment. Look at verse 5. He says, now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. When Jesus was born in a manger, when he was incarnated, when he became flesh, in some sense, he forfeited some of his glory. But now he's going to receive that back as he enters into heaven uh, with the ascension. So that's, that's the prayer that Jesus prays for himself. Starting in verse 6, we have the prayer he prays for the disciples. And I want to read some of that, but let's begin in verse 9. He says, I pray for them, for the disciples. Uh, I am not praying for the world, but for those that you have given me because they are yours. I'm not praying for everybody. He's going to get to that. Uh, but he's praying for the disciples. Verse 10, everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine. I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Now, that's not the end of the verse, but it's the end of a sentence. Let me stop there. Here Jesus says, I am no longer in the world. And you're thinking, oh, yes, you are. <laughs> you're standing there. The disciples are around you. There's no question. You're in the world. So how would he say this? Well, it's a confirmation of our understanding of time that we saw a few verses before. Jesus is seeing this whole event as having occurred because it's established. It is, it is ordained that this is going to happen. And so he stands back from the event and he's, he's picturing himself in, in heaven. So let's pick up there, middle of verse 11. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. Here he prays uh, for the unity of the disciples. He says, I pray that you will have unity. And, and more than that, he says, I pray that you will have the same unity as we have in the Trinity. And he's talking about the Trinity. One God, three persons, perfect union. He, he's praying, he's, he's asking God to give the disciples the same kind of perfect union that the Father has with the Son, and the Son has with the Spirit, and the Spirit has with the Father. To have that kind of union. Now, that really raises the stakes on the importance of, of being together, of having unity, right? If Jesus is praying for it, and he's praying that there is that perfect unity among, among his believers, among his children, then, then, then this must be extraordinarily important. In fact, uh, Jesus said near the beginning of his ministry, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, it's interesting here that twice in this prayer, Jesus prays that God would protect something. And we see it right here, verse 11, that God would protect their unity. And we'll see down in verse 15 in a moment, we'll get there. Uh, Jesus prays that God will protect them from the evil one. And it's interesting, these two expressions, even in the original language, they're, they're parallel. They sound the same. They use the same words. And, and it's as if they're connected. Jesus prays, Father, protect two things. Protect their unity and protect them from the evil one. I believe those two things are connected because 
the strategy of the evil one is to do what? Is to destroy unity. Unity in a family, unity at church, unity in a nation. That's the strategy of the evil one. And so when Jesus prays protect their unity and he prays protect them from the evil one, there's a connection between the two. So here's the lesson we learned from that. When, when we work for unity, and you know, unity can be work, right? Sometimes unity involves humbling ourselves. Sometimes unity involves us saying we're sorry. Sometimes unity involves us working hard to see something from somebody else's perspective. Sometimes unity involves us sort of absorbing the blows and issuing forgiveness. Unity can be hard work. So, so when we work for unity, we are fighting against the schemes of the devil. That's what he says as he puts these two things together. When, when we work for unity, we're fighting against the schemes of the devil. And when we work for disunity, we are cooperating with the schemes of the devil. Does that make sense? Because these two things are linked right here in Jesus' prayer. Now, let's go down to verse 14. Read two more verses of this. I commend the whole prayer to you. But two more verses. Verse 14, he says, I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So here Jesus says, the world has hated me, the world has hated Jesus, and they've, they've abused him, they have, uh, uh, they, they have chased him around the, the country, they're, they're, uh, the countryside, they're, they're about to arrest him and put him through this, uh, these six illegal trials, they will beat him, uh, they will put a crown of thorns on his head, they'll crucify him. Jesus says, the world hates me. But he says this, well, he's talking to the Father, but, but in the earshot of the disciples. So he's talking to them as well. He says, the world hates me and the world will hate you. He's, he's communicating to the disciples that they, they're not going to fit into this world. They're going to be misfits in some sense. And, and the Bible says that over and over. It calls us aliens in this world. It calls us sojourners in this world. It, it says that we won't quite fit. We'll have, we'll have different goals. We'll have a, a different ethic. We'll, we'll, have, we'll be working for the glory of God, not just the pleasure of man. We don't fit in this world. So he makes that clear. And then in 15, he tells us, he's talking to his father, of course, but, but in our hearing, he tells us really some wisdom for how to be misfits, for some, some wisdom for how to be aliens in, in a world that hates you. Look what he says. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So Jesus, he's talking of the disciples. And by the way, the disciples are going to have, a, have difficult lives from this point forward. Very difficult lives. Uh, most, if not all of them, are going to die because of their stand with Jesus. Difficult lives. So Jesus says, Father, I'm not asking you to rescue them. Don't take them out of this world. But instead, protect them from the evil one. Now let me show you from, from that prayer from that verse, three lessons, three pieces of wisdom that we learn for misfits, for, uh, for, for aliens, for people uh, living for Christ so the world hates us. Number one, our entire lifespan is for the glory of God. 
Our entire lifespan is for the glory of God. So these disciples had lived, however, however many years that they had lived, and, and now the rest of their life is going to be very difficult. And so you might, it might have been reasonable for Jesus to have just taken them out of the world, to rescue them from what was going to happen next, to, to help them avoid the difficulty and the suffering and the pain. But why did Jesus leave them? And why did Jesus not only leave them, but pray that the Father would leave them? Because their entire lifespan, God was going to use that to bring glory to him. It wasn't just the 20 years or 30 years that they had lived so far. No, God wanted to work through their lifespan all the way to the end. You know, I talk to people as, as pastor sometimes just about the meaninglessness of life. You know, sometimes people will say, I've lost my spouse or I've uh, lost my health, I've lost my career. And they'll say, Pastor, I just... I don't want to go on living because it's just meaningless. I hear younger people say the same things, but they use different words. They'll say, I just don't have a purpose anymore. I just don't feel like there's any purpose. Sometimes I'll talk to someone who's thinking about ending their life, suicide, and it's just, there's no point in going forward. Well, what should we think as Christians? What should our attitude be? What do we learn from this verse? Well, let me show you how the Apostle Paul said it. And I'll just read to you some verses, probably very familiar. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Paul said, and, and before I read this, the most amazing thing about the verses I'm, I'm going to read is just how honest Paul was. Paul's going to say something. I think when you really pay attention to it, it will make you uncomfortable. He is so honest. But, but I want you to see his honesty and I want you to see where he lands. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now we quote that verse a lot. Like that's, you know, that's a victory verse. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And, and, and it does speak of a victory. But, but when Paul said this, it was, it was more about how he was torn in his heart about whether he should live or die. The next verse, very next verse. He says, now if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. He's torn. Paul says, I don't know. He's, he's got his pro and con list. You can see it developing here. It, uh, if, I, if I stay, I can serve the church. If I, if I die, I can be with Christ. And he says, you know, honestly, if I just compare the two, being with Christ is much better than being with you guys. You know, so what he says, he says, you know, so you know, if I just followed my heart, I would, I would want to die. But here's what he says in the next verse, verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul said, I am ready to go to heaven. I am excited for my life to end. I believe that I'll live it forever with the Son of God, but... My life, my entire lifespan is meant for the glory of God. If you still draw a breath, God has something for you to do. God has some way that you can bring glory and honor to him. And your life may be tough. It may be painful. You may be sick. You may be broke. There may be all kinds of problems in your life. Your heavenly father knows. But he also knows what the remaining days of your life could do to bring glory and honor to God. And a father who loves you more than you can know has looked down and he has decided in his wisdom that the glory is worth the pain. Listen, don't give up. 
The glory is worth the pain. God has something for you to do significant to bring honor and glory to him that will be celebrated by you and the Lord for all eternity. Our lives, our entire lifespans are for the glory of God. Let me read one more verse from the Apostle Paul. It's just the next verse. I stopped in verse 24 on purpose. Listen to verse 25. He says, since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. He was determined. He was determined. What should the attitude of the Christian be when, when it seems like the road that we're going to travel is going to be so difficult? We ought to remember that Jesus, knowing that, prayed for these disciples, Father, leave them here because it's worth it. And when we look at the road we're traveling and the hardships we face, here's what the son is praying today. Here's, here's how Jesus is interceding for you today. Lord, don't take that person a moment before they've done everything they can do for your honor and for your glory. And listen, the Lord loves you enough that when your life has brought all the honor and glory it can bring to him, the Lord will take you on. Not a moment will he wait, he'll take you on. But Jesus prays, Father in heaven, do not take these disciples from the world, even though it's going to be a hard journey, because their entire lifespans for the glory of God. Now, the second thing that we learn, uh, wisdom for misfits, wisdom for aliens here, is that our highest priority is not to avoid difficulty, but is, it is to avoid sin. When we pray, and I'll just be honest with you, uh, when I pray, most of my prayer, or maybe most is an exaggeration, much of my prayer is me asking God to make my life easier. Now, I don't know if you think less of me when you hear that. What, what would be said of your prayer? I'm afraid that for most of us, much of our prayer is all about, God, help me to avoid the difficulties that I'm facing in life. But what did Jesus pray? So he's praying for these disciples, and whatever Jesus prays is going to happen, right? He's praying for these disciples, and instead of praying that life would be easy, he said, no, keep them there. Just protect them from the evil one. It seems that to Jesus, it was more important for them to avoid sin, the tempter, the evil one. It was more important that these disciples avoid sin than that they avoid affliction. See, I'm always praying, Lord, make my life easier, increase my resources, you know, give me good health. But God says the more important thing, there's nothing wrong with praying those things, but the more important thing is not, it's not how easy life is. The more important thing is the sins that I'm wrapped up in. I ought to spend more time praying about my sins than I do my, my, my luxury or my ease or the smoothness of my life. Jesus, Jesus prayed, not that they would be rescued, but that, that they would be protected from the evil one, the tempter, the tempter. So I thought about how Jesus could have prayed. Uh, this isn't advice. Of course, he prayed the way he, way he should have prayed and the way he wanted to pray. But, but listen, I think this is how we would have prayed or this is how I would have prayed. I would have prayed for the disciples and I would have said, Lord, give them plenty of food. Keep them warm. Don't let the enemies attack them. Keep them healthy. Make them wealthy. Bring them to heaven. 
Those are all good things. Amen, right? You want all those things. Jesus didn't mention any of them because he's more concerned about sin than he's concerned about affliction. Our highest prayers should be to be delivered from the evil one, to be delivered from sin. And then we can pray to be delivered from affliction. Now, the third lesson, the third piece of wisdom for misfits, I think is the most important. We need divine protection from the evil one. We need divine protection from the evil one. You might look back at verse 15. Uh, he, he says, I am not praying that you take them out of the world. He says, I'm not asking you to rescue them, but instead that you protect them from the evil one. Now, let me take a little detour here for a moment and, and, and just talk about a, a, a principle that we can learn for interpreting the Bible. Sometimes people ask, how can I know what in the Bible is literal and what in the Bible is figurative or it's just an allegory? So when I read something, should I understand that as history and it happened just as it says? Or should I imagine that that's just a, a, a mythical, fancy, poetic way of saying something? Is it just an allegory? Because there, there's some allegory in the Bible. So how can I tell the difference between what is history and what is allegory? I'll tell you how this question often arises. People will, will talk about the creation, the creation of the world. We preached on this just a few weeks ago. And, and you've got the Genesis 1, 2, and 3 story of creation. So is that just an allegory uh, that represents the principles of God as creation came together in some naturalistic way? Is that just an allegory, Genesis 1 through 3? What about Adam and Eve? You know, the Bible says Adam and Eve. Adam was the first man. Eve was the first woman. And we all have come from Adam and Eve. That's crazy, right? But is that true? Is it history? Or is that just an allegory of how, of how man began to evolve? Here's how you know. Here's one way you know. What did Jesus think? That's easy, right? If Jesus believed it was literal, guess what? It's literal. And if Jesus believed it was a fable or it was a, an illustration or an allegory, then it's an allegory. Let's let Jesus be the arbiter of, of, of what is what. When it comes to creation, what did Jesus think about Genesis 1 through 3? Genesis 1 through 3, according to the, to, to the belief of Jesus, the Son of God, was literal history. What did Jesus believe about Adam? Jesus believed Adam was the first man and all people have descended from Adam. And so Jesus, what Jesus believes settles a lot of questions that otherwise we might, might struggle with. So that brings, us, that brings us to this verse. Is there an evil force, a personal evil force arrayed against you? Uh, is there a devil? Is Satan real? Are there demons? Is there a spiritual battle going on? Now that's something that years ago, uh, many years ago, you'd preach at a church and everybody would believe, everybody would believe that that's exactly, it is a, it, it is a literal record what we see in the Bible of the spiritual warfare going on around us. But that's not so much true today. Today, uh, many Christians, maybe the majority of people who would, who would put their, themselves in the Christian camp anyway, 
uh, we'll, we'll say that that's just an, an ancient myth that was used to explain phenomena that they didn't understand. But now we have science and chemistry and, you know, we have cameras and, you know, there's no Bigfoot or, uh, you know, we know these things now. So, so that is just something that's ancient. It's not true. We just need to understand that as that's how they processed it. Well, so how do we know? All these references to evil and evil forces arrayed against us. Is that just a, is that just a story or is that literal? Well, here's the easiest way to know. What did Jesus think? And we see here, as we see in a number of places, Jesus believed it was literal. Look at verse 15 again. I want this verse just to, just to weigh on you. He says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. There is an evil one. There is a devil. Satan is real. There are demons. There's a spiritual battle being waged against you. I think one of the, one of the tragedies that, has, that is causing Christians more problems than perhaps any other tragedy is that we have ceased to believe what Jesus believed about this spiritual battle that, that we're in. So Jesus says that there is an evil one and he prays against it. Let me, let me show you what a couple of other people in the Bible have said. First Peter 5, 8, Peter said, be sober-minded, be alert. He says, now pay attention to this. This is important. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Peter said, when you wake up in the morning, you know that there are evil forces looking to ruin your life, to to tear your marriage up, to ruin your witness, to, 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 to rob you of your joy, to keep you from God's word. And, and, and it's intentional and it's personal. He says like a roaring lion. Ephesians, the apostle Paul said in Ephesians 6, 12, he said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Uh, let me just pause there a moment. What does he mean when he says our struggle is not against flesh and blood? You see, most of the time, and I'm guilty of this, when we have a problem, we think, we think the problem is a person, right? Or we think a problem is a thing. You know, the problem is my wife. The problem is my kids. The problem is my parents. The problem is that teacher. The problem is the boss. The problem is the, the employees. The problem is the neighbor. The problem is the brother-in-law. The problem, we, we point to people. We have a problem. We say, it's that person's fault. Or sometimes we'll point to a thing. You know, I don't have enough money or, I, or my health is not good or, you know, I, it's a thing. But what does Paul say? Paul said, you know, primarily our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not, our problems aren't people or things. He says, but we struggle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. If we follow Jesus... We have to believe that every one of us are in a spiritual, a personal spiritual battle against an evil force, against, against a, what, what he says here, a cosmic power of darkness is trying to destroy our lives. So what should we do? What should we do? That's good to know, pastor. What should I do? You scared me to death. <laughs> now, what should I do? Well, you know, a good pastor always has three things to do, Right? So number one, follow in the footsteps of Jesus and just pray. What did Jesus do about the spiritual battle that these disciples were going to experience? What did he do? He prayed for them. Father, protect them from the evil one. 
And Jesus told us to do the same thing. In, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives us the model prayer. And he tells us this is how you should pray. And listen, 6.13, Matthew 6.13, he says, pray like this. Lord, Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We ought to pray every day. We ought to pray, Lord, deliver me from evil. Today, I know that there are evil forces trying to destroy every part of my life, trying to rob me of the fruit of the Spirit, take away my peace, take away my joy, ruin my reputation. Father, I, I need you to lead me away, to protect me from that. So number one, just pray. Number two, take the attacks of the evil one seriously and put on the full armor of God. I read to you Paul a moment ago, Ephesians 6, 12, where he says, uh, you know, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against these cosmic powers of evil. Here's the very next verse. He says, for this reason, since we're in this battle, for this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. He says, there are some spiritual things that need to be true of you. You need to have an assurance of your faith or you need to talk with somebody or get down on your knees and talk to the Lord and read your Bible until you have an assurance of the faith. You need to, you need to have the spiritual components. You know what those things are. Those things, that's where we should put our attention. I, I, don't, I don't need to put my attention on some uh, demonic strategy and say, you know, there's a demon behind every bush. I never hardly even have a conversation about demons because the, the armor is about the spiritual things that I should be reinforcing in my life. When I wake up in the morning and I open my Bible and I, and I read and I meditate and I pray and I, and I ask God to protect me and I ask God to protect my children and my wife and I, I'm putting on the spiritual armor. Now the third thing I should do is simply to know that Satan works in our lapses of self-control. 1 Corinthians 7, 5 says in part, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Well, this is first a spiritual battle. So don't mishear me. You start fighting this battle with prayer. If you start anywhere else, you'll fail. Jesus started with prayer. He instructs us to start with prayer. Start with prayer. And then put on the full armor of God. This is a spiritual battle. Have the uh, the, the shield of faith to, to uh, block the fiery darts uh, of Satan, it says. So make sure these spiritual components are right. But you know, there's also just a common sense part of this. And that's what I think he's referring to in 1 Corinthians 7, 5. Really a, a verse that's, that's talking about marriage and, and intimacy and marriage. But, but he, he gives us this principle right in the middle of that. If you don't have self-control, Satan will find a place. He will find a place to launch his attacks in your life. He will find quarter in your life. And, and, and this is true biblically. And I can tell you in my life, it's true. When I don't have the self-discipline of the spiritual disciplines, I have just given Satan an opportunity uh, to bring all of his weapons against me. When we're sloppy about our church attendance, when we're sloppy about reading the Bible, we're sloppy about praying, we're sloppy about confessing our sins before the Lord every day, we're sloppy about having times every week when we worship the Lord, when we're sloppy about those things, when we don't have that spiritual discipline, we're just opening the door. You know, if, if you read this week that there was just a, a, a band of criminals that had moved into Nacogdoches, you would not leave your doors open tonight, Right? But, but spiritually, we, we have this lack of self-discipline in these spiritual things, and we're leaving the door open.
for the enemy to come in. And so, I'll read it one more time. John 17, 15, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. Father in heaven, I know their life's going to be tough. But it's worth it. Leave them there. Because they're bringing glory and honor to me. And I'll pray for the more important thing. Not that their life be easy. But I want to pray that you will protect them from the evil one. Keep them from sin. You know, it comes down to this. I want you to remember three words. You have a purpose, you have a charge, and you have an enemy. Our purpose is to bring honor and glory to God with all of our lives, all the way to the end. If you're drawing breath, your purpose, glory to God. Your charge to live a life of holiness. God has not told me to find the easy path. He's told me to find the holy path. And we have an enemy. I need to beware every day of the roaring lion seeking to devour. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I know that you love me just like you love those disciples. And I know you hear me often beg you to take the difficulties out of my path. And I should pray that way. But Father, I, I want from this point forward in my prayers to be more concerned about my sin than my ease. I want to talk to you more about the temptations uh, than I do the problems. Let my life bring glory and honor to you until the very last breath on the very last day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together in both rooms.